Good morning and welcome to Midpoint, your midweek, mid-morning source for news and public affairs with a local perspective. I'm Shelley Reback here with WMNF volunteers Jessica Green running the soundboard and Barbara Fling who will be answering your calls. We are coming to you completely commercial-free through the generosity of our WMNF community of listeners. If you are new here, welcome. You can join us as a radio activist to help keep us on the air by going to WMNF.org slash midpoint and hitting our tip jar and directing your contribution to MPW for Midpoint Wednesday. We appreciate your support. Today is a sad day. It's Wednesday, May 24th, 2022. It's less than two weeks since the last mass shooting and murders of 10 black people in a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. And today, we are mourning the murder of 21 people, or 20 people plus a shooter, 18 of them elementary school children in Texas. This is a uniquely American phenomenon. We suffer through and, inexplicably, we tolerate about 10 mass shootings a week in America, and that happens nowhere else in the world. Another uniquely American feature of these recent mass shootings is that so many of them have been perpetrated by teenagers. 18-year-old boys planned and carried out these two most recent shootings in Texas and Buffalo. A teenager carried out the Sandy Hook shooting, The massacre at Parkland High School was a teenager, and while the teenage mass shooter is a phenomenon we've seen ever since Columbine. So last week, we talked with our guests from Moms Demand Action for Gun Safety about access to guns, specifically about permitless carry gun laws in Florida. Up until yesterday, Governor DeSantis was crowing about his intent to pass permitless carry gun laws in Florida as soon as possible, maybe even during the special session that is currently supposed to be addressing the property insurance crisis in Florida. We have not seen any proposed legislation yet, but those laws generally allow anyone over 18 years of of age to carry a concealed handgun anywhere, schools, churches, parks, anywhere, without a permit and all without any safety training both of which are still required in Florida right now. Now just imagine, more teenagers with more access to more concealed weapons everywhere. If you find this as frightening as I do, I suggest you let your legislators know. We don't need more access to guns. Maybe you agree we need less, especially if, as we will discuss today, There is a crisis in teen mental health and fewer resources to address it. In fact, recently, Florida dropped out of the National Youth Risk Behavior Survey. And just today, the president of the Florida Association of School Psychologists warned that dropping out of that survey will will make it more difficult to assess what's going on with our youth, with our teens, what's going on with regard to their mental health, uh, because this is a survey designed to assess youth risk behavior and to inform public health policies. Well, Florida has dropped out of that. Um, And again, if you think that that's a bad idea, you need to let your uh, political leadership know that and ask them to reverse that decision. Because we always hear a lot about how mass shooters must be crazy. Uh, 
That's one of the excuses that politicians use for not enacting more gun reform. Well, he was crazy. He was a lone crazy wolf. But recent events don't seem to bear that out. These young shooters are not stereotypically cray-cray. They're not hallucinating voices telling them to shoot up a school. But they are in the throes of some kind of a mental health crisis. Research has shown that school shootings by teens typically involve a mix of things. Suicidal thoughts, despair, anger and rage, plus access to guns. Sometimes, as in the Buffalo case, compounded by online influences. In other words, these young men, because 98% of them are young men, these young men are experiencing many of the same psychological difficulties that many of our teens today are experiencing. Even before the pandemic, suicide was the second leading cause of death for youth ages 10 to 24. Since the pandemic, the rates of young people dealing with depression, self-harm, and suicide have gotten much worse. So this week, we are going to address the crisis in teen mental health. If we can't restrict their access to guns yet, hopefully, at least, we can have a better understanding of what to look for in our teens who may be in crisis. We can focus on how we can help them and we can learn what kind of mental and behavioral health resources are available in the community. I've got two terrific guests today to educate us on these issues. We'll be talking with psychologists Elizabeth Tanner, Supervisor of Emotional Wellness for the Hillsborough County Public Schools, and Dr. Wendy Rice, a psychologist in private practice, will be with us on the phone, and we'll talk to both of them about why our teens seem to be suffering mental health crises and what to do about it. Now, since we've been talking about schools first, let me start with you, Dr. Tanner. What is the emotional wellness program or department in the Hillsborough County Schools and what are you seeing in the teens that you work with? Thank you for having me today. Um, my, uh, again, my position is an emotional wellness supervisor. I help to see our district's um, mental health plan. It's part of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public School Safety Act. That legislation was passed um, a few years ago that gave us funding to support mental health awareness um, intervention uh, in our schools. So part of my role is to help students um, connect to their schools, uh, to community resources, but also to provide training uh, to teachers, to other district personnel, and to parents in our community on um, what is mental health, what are mental health challenges, what are mental health disorders, and how can we best serve our students um, in the schools to connect them to the appropriate resources either within the school or within the community. And, um, and how does your program interact with individual students, if it does? So within our schools, um, and I would say that Hillsborough County has a robust amount of resources when we talk about school psychologists, school counselors, school social workers, and even our school nurses that can assist um, students that need care right away. So our school personnel can meet with a child, counsel them, um, do an assessment to see what type of mental health issues are occurring, perhaps trauma, perhaps uh, anxiety, depression, and then on the spot try to uh, speak to those students to give them the appropriate care. And if that's not 
enough, we will then refer them to uh, the community for more intensive resources. Now, you know, um, in my research for this show, I learned that approximately 56% of mass shootings, um, the shooter exhibited some dangerous warning signs before the shooting. And the fact that so many mass shooters displayed these warning signs prior to their acts of violence highlights the opportunities to intervene and and prevent maybe these tragedies. But we learned that both the Parkland shooter and the Buffalo shooter uh, had encounters or referrals to law enforcement, I believe through their schools, and yet they were not deterred. So what do schools do and what can they do to intervene before a teen acts out violently? Like specifically, what, what can a school do? I mean, can a school report a kid to law enforcement? What happens when that report is made uh, to that kid? Are they taken into custody? Are they expelled from school? I mean, tell me specifically, what can the schools do when there are signs, dangerous, you know, warning signs uh, prior to, you know, what hopefully is an act of violence that can be prevented? So what's very unique with our mental health plan in the district, I think, is that our communication lines have really opened up. We speak more uh, readily with law enforcement and with the community agencies that are serving the students. That might not have been the case five years ago. Um, Sometimes we refer to student and we just didn't know what happened after that. But through our partnerships with our managing entity, Central Florida Behavioral Health Network, uh, some of our uh, resources such as DACO, uh, the Prices Center of Tampa Bay, Success for Kids and Families, we have an open line of communication on how the student is doing. So we're able to monitor their progress on whether the intervention that we have put in place is working or not. In addition to that, I think our teachers through training have just become more aware of signs and symptoms to look for. Um, Do you see changes in behavior? Uh, Is this child more irritable? Are they sleeping more? Are they um, causing issues within the classroom that are possibly disruptive or were they very outgoing and now they're not? Uh, Because we've kind of opened the door and lowered stigma to talk about some of these mental health issues, I believe we're getting more reporting on students that may be of concern so that we can then meet with them, speak with the families and involve the family in this process, and then refer to the appropriate agency who we then will talk to quite frequently to let us know how the student's doing. So, uh, you know, there are certain laws in place in Florida. They're called red flag laws uh, that we do have now that empower loved ones and law enforcement uh, agencies who do recognize warning signs uh, to petition a court to temporarily restrict a person's access to firearms when they pose a significant risk of using them to cause harm. And research shows that these laws are very effective in saving lives, especially in cases of of firearms suicides. Uh, It's not just that we're worried about uh, kids shooting up their schools. We're worried about them killing themselves. Let's be honest, right? So uh, does the school take advantage of that? Would uh, would a school who... who, uh, school personnel believe that a student may have access to firearms and may be the kind of uh, kid who would engage in self-harm or harm to the community, uh, take advantage of those red flag laws? 
Absolutely. Or Um, advise a parent to take it, because I don't know whether the school is a relevant party who could seek that kind of a court order or advise a parent or a guardian or a foster parent. Um, You know, we are often um, the carriers of information of how the student's functioning day to day. So whether the school will inform law enforcement that there is a concern with a child that may be suicidal or... Um, again, we have contracted with Grace Point, our, mani- our receiving facility, for involuntary examinations to have a mobile response team. So if a school feels as if a student may have access to weapons, um, is feeling suicidal, and having thoughts of suicide, we would deploy a mobile crisis response team to come to the school, and clinicians would work with that student right on the spot uh, to see how they're doing. So that's how the school would interact more so on, hey, we have a concern, we have a problem, we need to address it, whether it be the clinician side, more therapy-based and evaluation, or involving law enforcement if we feel the student has access to weapons. All right, you're listening to Midpoint on WMNF Radio, and we're talking about the crisis in teen mental health with my guests, psychologists Dr. Elizabeth Tanner uh, from the Emotional Wellness Program of the Hillsborough County School System, and soon Dr. Wendy Rice, a psychologist in private practice, uh, will be joining us too. And if you have some questions or comments about teen mental health issues, please give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org or you can text us at 813-433-0885. And although we've talked a little bit about how the stigma of mental health and mental health uh, issues uh, has, has lessened in recent years, I'm happy to keep any of your comments anonymous. Uh, if you call in, you don't need to give your name. You can give uh, a nom de guerre or just your first name, and we'll be happy to keep you uh, anonymous if you want to participate in this conversation with our our psychologists. Um, I do want to bring uh, Dr. Wendy Rice into the conversation. Dr. Rice, are you with us? Are you Are you with us? Uh, let me see if... Dr. Rice, are you with us? Okay, well, we're, we need to work on that. Um, I, don't, I don't hear Dr. Rice uh, on the phone with us. Um, we'll see if we can get her, get her back on. Um, I don't uh, only want to focus on school shooters here, though. I want to make sure that we, we talk about, I mean, most kids are not school shooters, um, but there does seem to be an enormous increase in the mental health suffering of teens generally. Um, there seems to be an epidemic of mental health issues in adolescents. I, I know that in 2019, 13% of adolescents reported having a major depressive episode, and that's a 60% increase from 2007. And emergency room visits by children and adolescents in that same period rose sharply for anxiety, mood disorders, and self-harm. And for people ages 10 to 24, the suicide rates that were stable from 2000 to 2007 have leapt nearly 60% by 2018, according to the CDC. So... Uh, 
what what is going on? Uh, it seems like the kids are not all right. You know, are we? Uh, do we really have legitimately kids, more kids with more mental health problems, or do we have simply more diagnoses? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both. As you could, as many people have said, this is the second pandemic. Is our mental health issues that have occurred because of um, the pandemic and COVID? We've had several families um, that they've had people pass away. Uh, family members have died. They've lost jobs. Um, they've experienced trauma because of those stressors due to the pandemic. And now, you know, two years later, we're still feeling the ramifications of that. And that, you know, our students are very resilient, but a lot of them need assistance um, and mental health support more than others. And that's why the schools are available Anybody on campus, a student can come up to someone, their librarian, their teacher, a lunchroom worker and say, I, I need to talk to somebody and we'll point them in the right direction. That's important for parents to know too. The school is an absolute resource. We're seeing an uptick in numbers um, of the number of mental health referrals, assessments, um, referrals to the community agencies. There are waiting lists sometimes that occur because of this. Um, And in a way, that's a good thing because we're helping families and they're more aware. Are are these resources available to families at any income level or no income level? Absolutely. Yeah, there are programs to help families financially. Uh, The school system is also um, due to funding from the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas Public School Safety Act, we can support families that need assistance with some co-pays or perhaps they can't get to an appointment. Um, that's why you'd want to contact the school and say, hey, I need help. And um, many th- of the th- state agencies help as well. I think that's very important for parents to know if you're out there in the WMNF listening world um, and you think that you can't afford to get your kid therapy or perhaps appropriate medication for any sort of mental health uh, disorders that they may be experiencing, know that the schools can help you and refer you to the appropriate resources and that you can get help regardless of your your income level. I think that's important information for our audience uh, to know. As, As I said, we are WMNF. Midpoint, and we are talking about the crisis in teen mental health with my guest psychologist, Dr. Elizabeth Tanner from the Hillsborough County Public School System. And we are going to try again to bring in Dr. Wendy Rice, a psychologist in private practice. Um, Dr. Rice, are you with us? I'm still here. I'm uh, here. Can you hear me this yes, time? Yes, we can hear you perfectly fine Fabulous. now. Fabulous. I've right. been listening since the beginning, so I am caught up and I know what's going on with you guys. <laughs> okay. Well, let me let me turn to you now. Uh, we've talked a little bit about the school system and resources with Dr. Tanner. Uh, you're a psychologist in private practice, so I'm assuming that your patients generally may come from a more affluent background uh, with parents who have already intervened by seeking out, seeking out a therapist for their teens. That's, you know, somehow they came to you. Um, right. Well, we deal with a lot of, we deal with the whole community, at least on the phone, when they're calling us who may not know that you know, what we do. So we're, we're still offering lots of resources, um, even if we can't directly serve. So I am so grateful to hear what the school is able to do because we definitely need to be 
sending folks back to the school to get some of these resources. Yeah, so it may be important for you to connect with Dr. Tanner, yes, you know, after the show even and <laughs> and learn about those resources that are available to families that maybe can't afford you. <laughs> it's now on my to-do list and has been moved to the top. Okay. So, uh, you know, the the patients that you see, the kids, the teens that you see are teens whose parents have already sought out some assistance have already come to some conclusion that their their teen is in need of psychological help, and so uh, they've come to you through whatever networks you have. and And let me ask you, what are you seeing in your teen patients? What what kind of problems are they coming to you with, or what kind of um, issues are parents raising to you about what they perceive in their teens? Great questions. Um, And I just want to say that most of our families come already recognizing they need help, but a lot of our families, I should say many, a lot of our, we, we see kids who are referred from school systems where maybe the parents aren't on board, but the schools are concerned. Okay. And the description about how um, the school personnel are staying in close communication with the treatment providers is happening in private schools as well. And it is a significant change with the amount of communication that schools are looking for from us, um, number one. And And part of our job sometimes is to help parents understand that the difficulties are more significant than they may know. So even though they're with us, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that they are really understand all of what's going on. And sometimes our job is to say, look, your child is having a much harder time um, than maybe they are showing you. So let's figure out what's going on. So when you come to that conclusion, what is it that you are perceiving in these kids that right. that is going on with them? And where do you think it's it's coming from? So I, it's coming, I think it's coming from a lot of different places. I Social media is brutal. It is out of control. It is diff- it's virtually impossible to fully monitor. It is virtually impossible to fully eliminate because so much of what kids are required to do requires them being on a computer connected to the Internet. And it is uh, the changes in our brains from having a, our phones you know, right next to us all the time. I mean, that is a huge issue. And what is happening on social media um, is is devastating um, from a lot of different perspectives. All right, let me let me stop you right there and let's talk about the rise of social media and whether and how that might be contributing to teen mental cri- mental health crises. I have a text message here from one of our listeners who asks, is there data available tracking the mass shooters' exposure to the right-wing echo chamber, especially to white supremacist propaganda, which, of course, we've seen in connection with the Buffalo shooter in particular. And I want to respond to Charles, who asked that by pointing out that uh, Florida has dropped out of that uh, youth risk behavior survey. So the data on that is really unavailable right now, current data anyway, in Florida. And, uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why it seems like we ought to not drop out of that that CDC survey um, so that we can answer that question. I also have a 
uh, a message here about uh, that from David, who says that, I worry about American boys who have a video game addiction, and many of them seem to have very few in-person interactions with family and friends. In many cases, their so-called friends are people they've never met in person, but only communicate through online video games like Call to Duty. Um, and David asks, could your guest speak on this video game addiction problem and its effects on young men and their families? Um, are we hearing about that? Dr. Tanner's yeah. nodding her head. Let me, yeah. let me turn to her first, Dr. Wrights, and then I'll let you comment. You know, we tell our parents to monitor as best they can, both with social media and with video game exposure, everything in moderation. So if your child is very into gaming and, and being online, at least they are socializing with other people. Um, they're having conversation, even though it's virtually per se, but that shouldn't be the only type of socialization that they have. We encourage other types of socialization as well, not to cut it out altogether. Um, and then with any type of you know bullying and what have you, when done through social media, you know this is something we want to hit right away. Um, investigate, look into if there's any type of threats or um, unwanted commenting of students. Uh, we look to our administration to handle those types of um, behavioral concerns. And of course, we're living in the days of "Don't Say Gay" and uh, "Stop Woke" legislation in Florida. Um, and one of the uh, major concerns about the that the opponents to the "Don't Say Gay" law have had is how dangerous it is to students' mental health, well and well-being, and that it, it you know that kids who maybe are already struggling with um, you know their own identity at a very critical and formative period of their life are now going to be potentially you know erased uh, from any sort of you know school discussion or any any ability to uh, you know bring this to the attention of their teachers even maybe school psychologists or guidance counselors and that has to be more alarming I would think to school psychologists um, and other people who are responsible for them. I also know that federal research has shown that teenagers as a group are also getting less sleep and less exercise, and they're spending less in-person time with friends, which all of which is crucial for healthy mental development. And it's, it comes at a period in their life when it's typical to test out boundaries and explore their identity. And so the combined result for some adolescents is a kind of like cognitive implosion, I guess. It, there's anxiety, depression, compulsive behaviors, self-harm, and even suicide. Um, and so, you know, one of the questions is are, whether these issues are, are inherent to adolescence and they, they just went unrecognized before or are they being overdiagnosed now? Um, and one of the reasons for that uh, youth risk behavior survey is to get some historical data so that we can figure out the answers to things like whether teen anxiety and depression you know, is, is more prevalent today than it was historically. We don't know that. Uh, Dr. Rice, what, what, what do you see with your patients in social media? Because your patients are, are, you know, apt to have, you know, the, the resources to, to have access to smartphones and, and computer games and things like that. What do you see? First of all, you are 
incredibly well researched, and you could be doing the show without us because <laughs> holy cow, I am blown away. Number one, number two, we are seeing less sleep. We are we're seeing everything that you are talking about. I a hundred percent believe everything in moderation. The research it seems to be showing that if you are a child who has pre existing mental health problems and you're spending a lot of time online gaming or constantly on TikTok or whatever, you are at a higher risk than somebody who doesn't have pre-existing problems, number one. Number two is when kids have electronics in their bedrooms, they are for sure having more disturbed sleep. They are, a lot of kids are having a ton of schoolwork to do and they're wanting to have enough time to be online with their friends or play games. So by definition, there simply aren't enough hours in the day for them to do everything. Um, and it becomes um, a crisis and kids become so like viscerally um, upset and agitated when kids, when parents try to limit their online access that um, at some point, a lot of parents just give up. Yeah, I, I, I would believe that. What, what, what do you advise parents in that kind of a situation? So I recently um, read a book called Resetting Your Child's Brain um, by an amazing, um, I think she's actually a physician. And, you know, one of the things that we've got to do is, number one, educate the kids and educate the families about the risk. Number two, under, teach them safe ways for kids to be online, which is, you spend an, a half hour, an hour online. You spend an equal amount of time doing something else. I definitely agree that the all-or-nothing approach doesn't work. However, having the kids online with no supervision, I always say, is like setting them free in Grand Central Station and telling them they can get on any train, talk to anybody, and travel anywhere they want, and we'll just turn a blind eye. So I think it's important for kids and parents to understand what's going on neurobiologically and how, you know, it is hard to have the self-control because it's, it's a lot to ask of ourselves, adults and kids. Yeah, so you know, are- you mentioned something about neurobiological uh, issues, and I want to also point out that the research shows that the age of puberty onset has dropped markedly, oh. for, particularly for girls, right. um, to 12 years old today from 14 years old in 1990. And the age of onset for boys has followed a similar path. And experts say that this shift now probably does play some role in the adolescent mental health crisis, although it is just one of many factors that uh, researchers are working to understand. But um, but we're seeing kids as young as seven and eight who are in full-fledged puberty. And that is terribly confusing. Yeah, I would imagine. I mean, you know, I mean, both externally and internally. Internally, of course, you know, you have the hormone storms that accompany puberty coming at ages where the brain's prefrontal cortex, which I think controls things like impulse control and rage and flight or fight uh, reflexes, uh, are implicated. And so you have these hormone storms with a less developed prefrontal cortex and kids are just, they just, you know, they're overwhelmed. They can't handle it. And I know that that's, you know, one of the things that researchers would like to know more about. Also, there's external factors that accompany that early puberty where, you know, God forbid, uh, you know, a young girl who appears more womanly at an earlier age is maybe subject to more sexual harassment 
or even, God forbid, sexual assault, you know, from people at an earlier age uh, because of her appearance. Um, and so, you know, they're being exposed to all of these factors at a much earlier age. Um, I want to turn to, I have um, Jackie Simmons on the line, who I'm so grateful that you called, Jackie. She's the head of Teen Suicide Prevention in Sarasota. Thank you so much for joining us, Jackie. You're on the air. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate the conversation that you all are having. Well, uh, we appreciate you joining us. So uh, what what do you have to offer from the perspective of teen suicide prevention? Because I, I, as I said earlier, I don't want to just talk about, you know, these teens who are acting out uh, toward others. Um, so much of what we're seeing in connection with the teen mental health crisis is about self-harm, uh, cutting, uh, you know, drug overdosing uh, or, uh, or suicide. So what, what are you seeing? What we're seeing is a huge upswing in the awareness, which is a good thing. The problem is that it's all focused on the at-risk. And so our big focus is on pure prevention. It's on being aware of the fact that you cannot tell by looking at someone whether or not they are struggling with a negative echo chamber, with what we call the negative echo chamber of the mind. You can't tell. And any age, they can mask. It's the common narrative. It's the person who's the happiest. It's the life of the party, the one that you would never expect. And the saddest words we hear are, we never saw it coming. Well, uh, you know, what, uh, what kind of resources does your organization have available to, uh, you know, to teens to, you know, help with suicide prevention? And how do teens come to you? How do they find they, you? They find us online. Teaspoon. Teen Suicide Prevention Society, the acronym is Teaspoon. So teaspoonswrittenout.org, and we give the script for how to have the talk that saves lives. It's a talk that is super simple, it's neuroscience-based, and it's totally scripted. So anyone can use this guide and start to what we call suicide-proof your friends and family. And I get interviewed all the time, and I walk my host through the four-step script online because it works just listening to someone else engage in it. So we're out to get ahead of the curve because we realize that you can't tell. When the Center for Disease Control came out and said 25% of American young adults were struggling with suicidal thoughts, and that came out in the summer of 2020, we knew that we had to get ahead. We had to go way upstream to pure prevention to be able to make a difference. So um, I think that that would be a useful resource for parents and perhaps, you know, for other therapists that haven't seen it, um, counselors maybe, um, parents, guidance counselors, that type of thing, to see that scripted um, guide, I guess, to how, how to talk to your teens. Is that it? It's more than just how to talk to your teens. It's even how to invite them to have a conversation where they don't roll their eyes thinking you're going to have the talk. Okay. So every night at 9 p.m. online on Zoom, 
I teach healers and therapists and counselors how to use this talk, how to have the talk, and what's working behind the scenes when they do. So it's a Zoom call, and it's at prosperitycall.com. Anyone can come. Well, thank you. That's really useful information. And I'm going to ask you, Jackie, if you would send that information uh, to my attention uh, to Shelly at dj at wmnf.org. I'll put it on our WMNF website so that it's available um, uh, to anyone who uh, didn't wasn't able to write down uh, the websites and the information that you just gave. Thank you very much. I, I, I appreciate that information. And thanks for calling in. Um, oh, you're welcome. Thank you for what you're doing. Okay, um, and and we can we can make that available on our website when I get that probably at the end of the day today. And I will share it on our website as well because what a powerful resource that we all need to have. Yeah, that you know that's one of the questions that I uh, I had for both of you, Dr. Tanner and Dr. Wendy Rice was um, what advice do you have for parents or anyone really? guardians, caregivers of kids about how to talk to them about, you know, their mental health. Well, I would be amiss by saying um, to our, you know, local families here, please don't forget about the Crisis Center of Tampa Bay. If you're ever in a crisis, you call 211. That's a 24-hour line. If you're feeling stressed or you're in an actual crisis where you're thinking of harming yourself, um, that's the number to call. And then I also, in that kind of retrospect, we did give cards out uh, with those numbers to every single student in our district to say, hey, you know, we're not here 24 hours a day. You, you know, your teacher goes home at the end of the day, and sometimes we have breaks and summers coming up. You know, know this resource, know 211, know that there's somebody there to help you. Now, what I'd usually tell parents, um, we follow the Youth Mental Health First Aid Awareness Training Guidelines, which um, <clears throat> this kind of acronym of ALGE is how to approach um, an adolescent, how to listen non judgmentally, give reassurance, and then encourage help. Um, <clears throat> this is very important for parents to kind of understand is that when your child's very resistant, maybe they will never want to talk to you about this. Don't end it there. Say, if you don't want to talk to me and you don't feel comfortable, who do you feel comfortable talking to? Is there a counselor? Is there a teacher? Is there a, a coach, a pastor, um, somebody that you do feel more apt to talking to? Um, and then start that conversation there. And when it's in a setting that is not heightened, um, you haven't ended an argument per se, and then you know starting right. this type of conversation, but in a very calm setting where you can find the appropriate resource where the student and the child does feel comfortable talking about these you know, things. You know, I've read several times in several places that uh, the best place to talk to your teen is in the car mm-hmm. because you're not facing each other. Right. And that, it, and that you know, sometimes face-to-face conversations do create that kind of heightened atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But if you're face, both facing forward and you're not looking at each other, sometimes it's easier to get more... Uh, a more in-depth conversation uh, that way. Um, I uh, or, or going on a walk with them if mm-hmm. they're willing to do anything movement with you because some kids feel trapped in the car and sometimes it's really hard to get them off of their phones and you Good know point. headphones out. And so I agree with the car. Although I remember as a kid dreading sometimes being in the car <laughs> <laughs> for that reason. Right. Um, right. Yeah. 
Okay, that's good advice, too. Um, I've got a text message here from Eric. I I want to uh, thank Eric for uh, correcting... or, or at least illuminating something that we said earlier about um, the potential for new legislation promoting permitless carry in Florida. Um, Eric points out that after Parkland, Florida uh, passed a law to prohibit persons under 21 to buy guns in the state. Um, now, Eric claims that changing the concealed permit rules would not affect that. I'm not convinced that there wouldn't be legislation um, lowering the age to purchase handguns if uh, Governor DeSantis had his way. But currently, he is correct that it's illegal to sell a gun to someone under 21 in the state of Florida. That's the current state of the law. I also want to... Um, to read a text message from Kathleen who says, listening to your teen experts, I'm asking if there is a safe place for a 17-year-old houseless girl. Her family is unable to rescue her. There seems to be no place other than juvenile jail for her. Many thanks. That's from Kathleen. Uh, Dr. Tanner, can you help Kathleen out with that information? Sure. You know, we have many students that um, are in the foster care service. They are um, minors that do not have um, parents per se. And um, what I would always recommend is that whoever is you know, with that student or that child to reach out to their school social worker. There are programs available for any type of youth um, to get the assistance that they need. And that's just not just mental health. This is talking about um, possible um, food, clothing, rent, um, teaming them up and finding housing for them, um, whether it be a, a foster care home or other type of facility. You know, those are folks on campus that can assist that child so they're not in the streets, they're not sleeping in cars and uh, how, couch surfing from place to place. As soon as we know about a child that's in need, we assist them to find the best path, per se, um, with the resources that are available in the county. So, school social worker, that's where to go. All right, yeah. uh, Wendy, Wendy, I want to, Dr. Rice, I want to talk to you about medication now. Um, and uh, Dr. Tanner, feel free to, to jump in, but I, I want to ask, uh, you know, uh, well, two things, really. First of all, how I, psychologists do not prescribe medication. In order not in the for the state of Florida, not in, in the, the state, state of Florida. Okay, in the state of Florida, psychologists are not permitted to prescribe medication. For that, you need to seek out a psychiatrist or uh, or pediatric neurologist. Okay, are assisting with that. There are um, licensed um, nurses who are A R and A R and yeah, nurse practitioners. They and and there now are some who have standalone practices. And um, primary care physicians are sometimes willing to at least get kids started and sometimes willing to manage if it's not too complicated. Now, from, from the perspective of, of a psychologist, I assume that a lot of uh, kids start with a psychologist and then in, in connection with their talk therapy, maybe it becomes clear to the psychologist that this is a kid who could potentially benefit from medication. And so then how does that kid get to a psychiatrist or one of those other medical professionals who are uh, 
allowed to prescribe medication? What's what what? How how does a kid find the right doctor? Okay, for so that I can speak for my practice. We often will start with the pediatrician, so that the pediatrician knows what's going on, and together um, we will figure out the best route and decide. You know, the easiest thing is if the pediatrician is experienced and comfortable, and they can manage it. Um, otherwise, we personally match people. So we typically will call a psychiatrist or a nurse practitioner who we know or a neurologist and say, look, this is what's going on with this kid, with parent permission, of course, um, and try to get them hooked up with the right person uh, for them. Okay. And try to you know, stay in as good communication so we can help monitor it because we know that it's not always the best fit. Um, right. Starting out and, and that there is a trial and error game. There's also a lot of education that has to happen with the kids and the families around them. Right. And, uh, and it's the same with the with uh, kids in the school system. Sure. <clears throat> we have a few community agencies that provide wraparound services and case management services. So <clears throat> what they'll do is connect the family, not only with perhaps a psychologist, but then you know, another person who could prescribe and do medication management. And that's that wraparound type of all-encompassing type of service um, that they can provide to the families. All right. Ideal. You're, you're listening to Midpoint on WMNF Radio, and we are talking about the crisis in teen mental health with my guests, Dr. Elizabeth Tanner from the Hillsborough County School System and Dr. Wendy Rice, both psychologists. Um, and if you have any questions or comments about this issue, you're free to give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can email me at dj at wmnf.org or you can text me at 813-433-0885. And hopefully we have a couple minutes uh, to uh, to take your calls or comments. Um, I have Robin on the line from Seminole. Robin, you're on, you're on the air. Yeah, hello everybody. Um, I'm a breathwork facilitator for 20 years and It'll beat a psychologist and a psychiatrist hands down. So these kids need to do some breath work and do some breathing. Breath, uh, with breath, a, with breathing, breath. breathing, yeah. breath, did you say? Breath, breath work, breath work. Yeah, no one's heard of it because it's it's amazingly effective, uh, but nobody wants to, uh, everybody, nobody can make money off of it. So it's such a simple thing. And if they have a good facilitator who's present and loving and give those kids some nice loving affirmations, and make them feel special and do that breath work, diaphragmatic breathing for about 45 minutes. It is way better than any psychologist, psychiatrist, and pills. Okay. Uh, All right. Uh, well, uh, thank uh, you, Robin. Oh, thank Hold on. Th- I, have one, I have one more comment. Go ahead. Judges, judges in courthouses are protected by a magnetometer, a metal detector. Why can't we protect children? With a fence and a metal detector, is that so hard for politicians to come up with? Well, we come do on. have we do have schools with fences and metal detectors. Wow. I'm, well, sa- okay. I'm sad to report, but thank People you for are, your call, Robin. Appreciate it, are, Kelly. Shelly, can I speak to what he just said? Yes, go ahead. So, um, the so some, trauma is a huge piece of what's going on here, and often not recognized because. Those of us who were trained a long time ago may or may not have a really good understanding of the impact of trauma or what is traumatic to one child that may not be traumatic to another. And we and from what he's saying about breath work is that the body keeps score. We know that from the experts in the trauma field. And we really do need to connect with the lower parts of all of our brains to help us be soothed because the amount of stress that we're all under 
and anxiety. We're in that fight or flight mode all the time. And the amount of time, whether you're on social media or you're having to memorize a ton of stuff for a test or your parents are stressed about finances, we're kind of, a lot of us are living in that all the time, especially kids. So that accepting, loving, we're just going to be soothing and calming and breathing together. I mean, I don't know that it would beat any psychologist or medication anywhere, but it needs to be an important part of what we are doing in addition to talking to the smart part of these kids' brains, right? But we can't just talk to the smart part of these kids' brains when they're in crisis. We have to also reach them on like more of a, I don't know, a feeling level. And the other thing is, based on what uh, Dr. Tanner said earlier about, you know, uh, how parents can talk to kids. I agree with everything. And I just want to reemphasize the kids in my care are not necessarily feeling heard and validated by their parents. They don't want us to fix their problems. They want us to listen. They want parents to listen, number one. And they don't want parents to immediately take action or immediately call the school because kids' biggest fears is that the adults are going to get involved and we're going to make things 10 times worse. Uh-huh. So I'm not saying that there aren't times when you absolutely have to talk to the school, but and, and you do, but this is such a rough balancing act with kids because if, po- if possible, they kind of want to fix their own problems as best they can, and they want to be accepted for who they are. The number of kids struggling with gender identity and sexual orientation issues is profound. And parents are much slower to get on board in many cases than the kids and their friends and even educators. And we're not allowed to talk about it in schools in certain cases anymore. Right. And so these kids just want to be seen for who they are, know that they're okay, know that you love them, know that they're accepted, acceptable. Um, And I think the idea that they can be okay and there can be room for improvement is a really tough one. I love you how you are. I accept you for who you are and how you are. And there's still ways that we can all do better. Like that is a rough thing for a kid to wrap their brain around. Yeah. Uh, You know, I want to thank Robin for his suggestion about breath work. And I think, you know, meditation is in that Mm -hmm. same category. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, You know, experts say that there are certain essential habits that are significant in promoting mental and physical health. So uh, particularly with kids, with teens, sleep is huge. Young people with developing brains, according to experts, need at least 8 to 10 hours of sleep. And the way our high schools in Hillsborough County are set up, most of them are not getting that because high school starts so early in the morning here. And we have... We have uh, committed to that schedule because of our bus issues. Right, because, right? right yes, Dr. and Tanner? we are extremely large, Hillsborough County. Yeah, we're like what? Being the, the size of Rhode Island. We're, yeah, we're, we're, we're the size of Rhode Island, mm-hmm. and we're what, like the seventh largest school in district the nation, in right. the nation. And kids need to be bused to school, and we don't have enough buses. So in order that the littlest kids are not walking to school in the dark, we make the older kids come to school so early uh, that we can pretty much be assured that None of them are getting the recommended eight to 10 hours of sleep. And lack of sleep can really interfere with their development, um, their brain development, and it can dramatically impact their mood, their ability to learn. 
Um, and physical activity is also really vital to mental health and to, of course, physical well-being. And we don't, you know, with the prevalence of online learning now, kids are sitting on their butts, you know, for hours and hours and hours on end. And, you know, they're not even moving between classes the hall, in the hallways like uh, before we went to more online learning. And so these are things uh, that... Uh, we need to recognize that we need to improve on. Um, and so uh, I think that, um, you know, this has been a very, very useful uh, discussion. And before I end, I just have one minute. I'm going to ask you both very briefly if there's anything that I haven't t- asked you about. Is there anything you want to add briefly? Uh, no, just again, please feel very comfortable um, reaching out to someone at, at your school site if you have concerns. It, like Dr. Rice was saying, it doesn't mean we have to begin a counseling session or what have you. It's sometimes just reach out to your school for resources. All right. Thank you. Um, I want to thank both my guest psychologist, Dr. Elizabeth Tanner from the Hillsborough County School Systems Emotional Wellness Program and Dr. Wendy Rice, who is a therapist, a psychologist in private practice in Tampa. Thank you so much for being with us to discuss this difficult subject. Dr. Rice, is there anything very briefly you want to add before we end? I'm happy to be also a resource. I do a lot of speaking and I'm happy to come and share what I can, especially in communication with kids, understanding kids. Um, and, you know, I'm off, like you, maybe not as well read as All you. All right. Um, I'm sorry, I do have to cut you off because we go off the air shortly, but I want to thank my stalwart WMNF volunteers, Jessica Green and Barbara Fling, who helped me bring this show to you every week. Next week, I will be out on vacation. Yay! And <laughs> Sean will be rerunning a show from our archives, probably our show with the Tampa Bay Abortion Fund, which has a lot of very useful information about the availability of abortion access locally. And in the future, uh, if we lose uh, legal abortion completely. So you know all of our past shows are archived and available to listen on demand from our website, wmnf.org slash midpoint. Now the show for the week following that on June 7th, uh, we will be in the WMNF Summer Fundraising Drive, and we would be oh so grateful for your support for Midpoint. If you appreciate the shows we do on current events with a local perspective, please show us uh, your appreciation uh, with your generous contribution by going to the WMNF.org slash donate page and look down the page for where it says direct your donation to and find MPW for Midpoint Wednesday and let us know that you're listening and you want more Midpoint. You can even do that today. Now, please stay tuned uh, for Duncan Strauss and Talking Animals after the NPR News. Again, thank you to my guests. We are WMNF Tampa, and this is Midpoint. Midpoint.